Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we'll read verses 13 through 18 together. Paul, writing to the church in Thessalonica, writes in chapter 4, verse 13, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as those who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. Ah. Uh, I'm going to need a bit of leeway this morning from you and uh, mercy. Um, I uh, have not slept much, and I imagine that even though I will try, that um, my emotions are going to get the better of me here at a few different points. Uh, but there is something, several things that are important here, and it would be a disservice not to cover them even if it's through tears and, and crying. Um, there are no magic words when someone dies. If you have uh, been with a family shortly after someone dies, then perhaps uh, you know the temptation to try to help say the right thing. Or help do the right thing. And when we say the right thing, often the, the compulsion is to try to say or do something that will help people feel better. This leads to a, a lot of error, unfortunately. And ultimately a lot of harm in the world as human beings who themselves are finite try to figure out what in the world they're supposed to say to someone who is mourning the loss of a loved one to try to make them feel better. There isn't anything magical to say to make someone feel better in that moment. There just isn't. And oftentimes a lot of wrong things get said about God, about heaven, And that's ultimately no more helpful than saying nothing at all. In fact, it actually introduces an element of harm. What we read in verse 13 then is very important for the Christian as they face death. And just two points from the passage, one from verse 13 and one from verse 14 before we consider a few other things. Point number one, 
What we know, our knowledge, matters when we face death. Verse 13, Paul writes, I do not want you to be ignorant. He doesn't mean ignorant as an insult. He means ignorant as in not knowing what you should know. The reason why he doesn't want them to be ignorant is because if they don't know what they should know, second half of verse 13, lest you sorrow as those who have no hope. So, a lack of knowledge when we think about the death of a believer is a dangerous and painful thing. What we know matters as we face death. He does not want the Thessalonians to mourn death hopelessly. And the way they're going to mourn with hope, the way they're going to avoid doing it without needless pain is by knowing what they ought to know. And then he unfolds that in verses 14 through 18. Verse 14 says, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Now, verse 13 says, I want you to know what you need to know so you don't go through the pain of death wrongly, mourning like those who don't have any hope in the world. But then verse 14 starts not with knowing things, but with believing things. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And this is the second thing, and what I want to point out from verse 14 in the O comes to us. First, what we know matters as we face death. Second, what we know comes to us by faith. Brethren, I want you to know the right things concerning those who've fallen asleep. Verse 14, for if we believe, if we have faith, that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Built into verse 14 is the assumption that Christians understand that God sent his son Jesus with a purpose, that what Jesus accomplished, God planned. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. In other words, it assumes the Christian understanding that Jesus' death and resurrection was with the purpose that God would raise others as well. That our faith in Jesus is not merely faith that a man died and came back to life, but it's faith in the purpose of God in this particular man dying and being raised from the grave. And if we believe that, then we can know God's purpose in the resurrection of Jesus was not merely the resurrection of Jesus, but that all those who sleep in Jesus will be raised as well. This is a big deal for the Thessalonians. Paul had spent, it seems, very little time in the grand scheme of things with the Thessalonica church. And yet, apparently, one of the things that he had worked with them through in the limited time that he spent with them was that the Lord Jesus was going to return. 
And then, having left them to go about his missionary journey, people in Thessalonica who had trusted Jesus died. And faced with their death, the Thessalonians were concerned. What does it mean that they did not make it until the return of Jesus? What does it mean that they have died and that they are not present for the return of Jesus? And this is how Paul comforts them. Trust in the purpose of God in Christ. Jesus did not die to prove God's supremacy. Jesus did not die simply to prove that death could be defeated. Jesus died so that God... And if we believe that, then we can know that God will bring with the Lord at His return all those who sleep in faith in Him. Knowing this matters. Here is Romans chapter 5, verses 17 through 21 on God's design here. You can turn there if you'd like or you can listen. But again, this speaks to God's purpose. Romans 5, 17. For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. There are, are two men being discussed here in Romans chapter 5. One is Adam. One is the man who brought death into the world. One is the man by whom the curse of death came upon every human being. And the other is Christ. For if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. Two verses... In both verses, they end on life coming through Jesus Christ. Verse 19, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience the plan of God in Christ Jesus coming into the world and living a sinless life and submitting himself to the Father even to the point of death, even death on a cross, so also by this one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, as sin demonstrates its power over human beings through the curse of death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Death is not just a natural thing. Death is not just something that human beings go through. It's not the Disney version of the cycle of life. Death is the enemy. 
The power of death is the reign of sin in the lives of human beings. Jesus came with a purpose to defeat this enemy. He lived a life of purpose to defeat this enemy. He died a specific death, a sinner's death, to defeat this enemy. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, I'm sorry. There are some for whom the idea of heaven is really like a soft pillow that they can rest on at night. And they don't live their lives with any real thought towards heavenly things except for when they need the pillow. They don't talk about death and life. They don't talk about loved ones who've gone on, except within the context of the comfort of their pillow. And to these people, churches gather and churches worship Almost for the expressed purpose of making people feel better about hard realities in life. And if the comfort of heaven and if the comfort of a savior helps those church people feel better about things, then good for them. But quietly, secretly, personally, it's probably not really true. We know that people don't come back to life. There's probably no kingdom of God. Well, for me, I know this is true. I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him until that day. I have committed my life to Jesus Christ. I know him personally. And I am persuaded that he alone can keep that which I have committed to him until the day of judgment on which I will hear the words well done my good and faithful servant enter into the joy of your Lord and my father who loves me will embrace his son and I will embrace my father 
These are not fairy tales. These are convictions. Carl believed these things too. Carl's life must have looked very strange to the rest of the world. And I don't want to be confrontational, but perhaps even to some of us, it looked very strange. No one could argue that he was not a busy man. He was a busy man. He had a full-time job. He had the farm. Children and grandchildren to raise and care for. Still children in the home. He never ran out of projects. He was not a man of leisure. He was a man who labored. And yet, he was never far away from the body of Christ. And this, I think above all else, is what I want to commend to you this morning. In fact, I do mean to challenge you in it. He was not too busy to worship on Sunday mornings or to teach children on Sunday nights or to study the Bible with us on Sunday evenings and Wednesday evenings. And he didn't merely come when he was teaching or when he was leading. He was not too busy to pray and to study with men faithfully on Sunday evenings, even recently. It has been nearly two decades of Christian service with Carl for me. And he was an example of faithfulness to this church. I would not and could not say that about every man I have known. Carl was an example of faithfulness to this church. He was not too busy or too bored or too distracted so that he would be drawn away from the body of Christ by other things. And this is why. The other things in life must be subject to the primary thing in life. This is Christian maturity in a nutshell. And what is the primary thing for the Christian man? Jesus tells us to take up the cross daily and follow him. Those are Jesus' words in Luke 9.23. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. By the cross, we mean that to serve the Lord is to suffer. By taking up the cross, we mean that to serve the Lord is to choose a life of sacrifice. And by taking up the cross daily, we mean that when a man becomes a servant of Jesus Christ, he is to serve him every day of his life. If this is a Christian man's devotion, then the other things in life that he does will be profitable both to him and to his family. But if serving the Lord with all his heart becomes tedious, boring, secondary, then a man will find himself wandering off a foundation of solid rock and playing in the sand.
Carl did not play in the sand. He was not building sand castles on wishy-washy temporary things. He was not a man of silly toys or shiny treasures. He was not a man devoted to building impotent empires that only seem impressive to those puffed up with pride or to those who would be rich in this life, which is to say those who will be poor in the next nor was he a simple man. He was not content to raise his children on some island of self-sufficiency, to look to himself to the exclusion of others. Carl was thoughtfully and sacrificially serving Jesus for as long as I've known him. And I am confident that he is with the Lord today because of it. I would say this about Carl. If the way he lived his life looked very strange to you, if his commitment to God's people and to the study of the word and to the simple service of labor on every workday, we're only a few weeks removed from me watching Carl rip drywall out of the Adorn building, the 60-some years old. If the gift of his time when people were gathered together, if his prayer when God's people prayed and his smile and his hospitality when God's people assembled, if that seems strange. If this was a life that looks strange to you, then I hope you'll become more familiar with it as you grow in Christ. It does not seem strange to me. I think the most wonderful gift that a mother or father can give to their children is to demonstrate what a sacrificial servant of Jesus looks like. And I say that now from my own experience as a man who was raised by a servant of Jesus. My father's faults, which were plain to me, as is the case with all fathers and their children, Though they were many, his faults in the end were surpassed by his constant and unceasing labor in the body of Christ for the kingdom of God. And I am not who I am today because dad taught me how to throw a ball or to lay down a bunt or to treat people with respect or to work hard. He taught me all of those things and a lot more. And we usually had a good time as he was teaching me those things. But the reason I serve the Lord today and the reason my life is not overcome by sin is because my dad showed me what it meant to serve the Lord to the great sacrifice of his money and his time and his own desires. And I saw in his example a life more filled with treasure than the garages and the bank accounts and the wind columns that were held up on high in my friend's homes. And when it was all said and done, I wanted the treasure of my father, even before I realized, as I wanted, realized I wanted it. And this is the treasure of knowing Jesus. I wanted to know my father's peace and my father's joy and my father's security. I wanted to know a life of purpose and to live a life that mattered. And I admired, even when I did not understand, my father's willingness, even his eagerness 
to just be God's servant. Whatever that meant from day to day. That is my father's treasure. And when I had a taste for so-called other treasures in this world, I did not find them to be any better than that. So I served the God of my father. Carl was a great friend to my father. That's why when I think of my dad, I think of Carl. When I think of Carl, I think of my dad. There was an overlap in the strangeness of the way they lived their lives. Uh, Carl was a missionary. Carl was a teacher. Carl was a worker. He showed up and he was always there. He was kind to children. He was inviting to strangers. He didn't pretend to have all the answers. There was an overlap in the strangeness in my dad and Carl. He made um, decisions that the world would consider drastic about his children. Just because he was committed to raising them in the Lord, my dad did the same thing. When I think about what I admire in both men, the qualities and the character that stick out to me are the fingerprints of Jesus. Jesus looks strange to the world. These strange and otherworldly markings of the Spirit of God are the markings that God has molded a man like clay into a person that he could never become on his own. Carl, with his own faults, was and remains a man of great treasure. And yesterday he came face to face with that treasure. The treasure who died on the cross to embrace him as a brother. And he rose from the grave that he might live forever. This is not a eulogy to him. But it's the truth of what I saw in his life. What should we do then now? I want to offer just a couple of practical things. Number one, it's right to mourn. That's Romans 12, 15, Matthew 5, 4. There's nothing wrong or evil in mourning. Only we shouldn't mourn as those without hope. The family is mourning and they're mourning in different ways. They're different people. It's right to mourn with those who mourn. That's Romans 12, 15. And I hope that you'll do that. I hope that you'll pray and you'll think about how you can comfort. The second thing is it's right to serve, which is love. It's right to serve. And I have no doubt that everyone here will make themselves available for that service. Number three, it's right to encourage one another with the word. When you step outside of the word, sometimes our attempts to encourage others go awry. But it's right to encourage with the word. For comfort, one read from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 18. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And finally, it's right to pray. It would be wrong not to. So this time I'm going to ask you to bow your heads with me. 
and to pray quietly in your hearts with the aim that the sanctuary this morning becomes for a moment an offering of prayer to God from his people lifted up to heaven. I'm going to be silent so that you can pray undistracted by my voice and then I'll pray aloud. And when I pray, I'll ask that the ushers come forward to receive the offering as they do every Sunday. And then we'll close our worship service in hymn and prayer. Let's pray together. Father, as we come now before you, I ask, Lord, that you will comfort the family, that you will help each one to mourn in their own way and provide for them, brothers and sisters in Christ, who will come alongside them to help. I ask that you'll give us peace and the assurance of Carl's life. Father, please use us for your kingdom's purposes, even in this. I ask, Father, that if there are any here today who don't know you through faith in your son, Jesus, that whatever barrier exists will be crushed before the reality of death's reign in the sinner's life. And that they will see in your son Jesus not merely a man who died for them. But the chance for grace to have a victory that leads to life. Your spirit can do that in their hearts much better than anything I can say. Father, break down the barriers now and draw people to you. Father, I pray for Josh and the Wellmans once more that you will heal and keep, that you will demonstrate love as a physician. In tithes and offerings this morning, Father, we thank you for the privilege to give of the stewardship you've given us. We ask that you use it for your kingdom. We thank you for the opportunity to honor you this way. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.